Uh, we are talking about uh, um, a topic called textual criticism today, and I will explain what that is if you've not heard that term before. But uh, as you recall, we have been, over uh, the past few weeks together, we've been talking about bibliology, that is a doctrine of Scripture. And, uh, and so what we're kind of doing, if you recall, is we're, we're laying a foundation in, in regards to saying, what do we believe about Scripture? What are the attributes of Scripture? What are the characteristics of Scripture? Uh, and then that will then move us into the, the second half of the quote-unquote semester. We'll be talking about hermeneutics. That is, how do we interpret it? So, so this part of the semester is, what is the Bible? And then uh, the next uh, uh, half of the semester will be, what do we do with that? How do we read this? How do we study this? How do we interpret this? What are some methods that we can use to help protect our uh, interpretations of Scripture and so forth? And so, if you recall, we started with this idea called inspiration, that Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. And we kind of uh, use the analogy that that is kind of the hub and coming off of that are all of these other attributes. Because Scripture is inspired, it's authoritative. Because Scripture is inspired, it's inerrant. Because Scripture is inspired, it's trustworthy. And uh, on and on and on we could go. And, uh, and so what we've been talking about is really this doctrine of Scripture, this bibliology. And today we'll get into this question of textual uh, criticism. But before we do that... Uh, let me go ahead and pray for our time together. <laughs> Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to gather together this morning and to be encouraged, hopefully, by uh, your word uh, as we uh, seek to know it further, Lord, as we seek to learn things about uh, history, as we seek to learn things uh, about uh, just how you have preserved and protected your word over time and how we can trust uh, the Bibles that we have today. And so, uh, Lord, I pray for your blessing upon this time that you would uh, grant us a deeper and deeper confidence in your word and deeper and deeper confidence uh, in you. And so we love you. We pray for your help upon this class and upon uh, the sermon and uh, all that we have to do today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been talking about all of these various attributes of Scripture that kind of come off of this idea of inspiration, uh, we, have, we have continually come back to the idea that all of these attributes are, uh, are specifically technically related to something called the autographs of Scripture. Does anybody remember what the autographs of Scripture are? Yeah, the original writings, the original manuscripts, all right? So that which is actually written by a Peter or a Paul or a David or whoever it might uh, be. But as we uh, will learn today, uh, we don't actually have any of these original manuscripts. We don't have any of these things that are called the autographs of Scripture. We don't have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible or even of any individual book of the Bible. Uh, in fact, we, we don't even have copies of those things or copies of copies. What we have is more copies of copies of copies or copies of copies times four or five or six or whatever it might be. Adding to this difficulty is the fact that if you look at the manuscripts of Scripture that we do have, thousands upon thousands of them, no two manuscripts are going to match exactly. And the closest two manuscripts that we will find 
uh, have at least six differences uh, per chapter. Adding to this difficulty is also the fact that we don't have early copies of entire books. Since most of our earliest manuscripts, most of the earliest texts that we have are just fragments, just little pieces that have been torn off of a scroll or a codex or whatever it might be. And then lastly, this is a shocking number, there are about 400,000 discrepancies, which in this field called textual criticism are called variants. There are about 400,000 of these discrepancies that exist between various uh, manuscripts, meaning that there are almost three variants for every word in uh, the New Testament. So that, that information right there, just in and of itself, would sound very upsetting That would sound uh, very disturbing to our faith. How can we have any confidence in the scripture as we have it in light of these facts uh, that I just (laughs) read out? Because everything that I just said is absolutely accurate. It's absolutely true. It's not just something that skeptics say. Evangelical scholars would stand here and say, this is true. We don't have copies of copies. We don't have the original manuscripts. Uh, We don't have... uh, 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 perfect examples of um, the exact same text across two different manuscripts. In fact, there's about 400,000 or so variants in between uh, the various uh, manuscripts that we have. Have you ever seen the movie Multiplicity? Anybody ever seen Multiplicity? Multiplicity is a a comedy starring uh, Michael Keaton, and, uh, and Michael Keaton plays this guy who's just overworked, exhausted, uh, trying to uh, work this job as a, a project manager for a construction company, while at the same time trying to, uh, to, to lead his family. And he's got a whole bunch of just other things going on, and he's just exhausted. And so uh, one day he meets a guy who, unbeknownst to him, is actually a scientist leading in the field of cloning. And so uh, he gets uh, Michael Keaton to agree to be cloned. So Michael Keaton gets a clone of himself, and then there's two of them. They go about doing their work and so forth, but something's a little bit off about this clone. It's not quite fully Michael Keaton, uh, but still pretty close, and, uh, and yet Michael Keaton finds, e- even though there's now this clone, there's still things that he's not getting done, so he clones himself again and gets this other guy. So now there's three of them, right, and they're getting a lot of stuff done and so forth, but these two clones decide, you know what, we could really use a little time off ourselves. So they clone themselves. So you now have a clone of a clone, a copy of a copy. And if you've seen the movie, you know this guy is totally not like Michael Keaton. This guy is handicapped mentally. He has, uh, I mean, he's licking razor blades and, uh, and, and wearing socks on his head and so forth. Just a complete mess. That's what a lot of people think of when they think of this idea of textual criticism. When I say we have copies of copies of copies of copies, you think about, you might think about uh, what would happen if you took a, uh, a piece of paper and you Xeroxed it, and then you made a copy of that, and you made a copy of that, and you made a copy of that, and you made a copy of that. Anyone who's ever done that, what do you find after five, six, seven, eight copies? It's distorted. It's illegible, right? So that's what a lot of people think of whenever they think of this idea that we're gonna talk about today in textual criticism. They think that the copies of scripture have become so distorted that they're illegible, that we can't actually recover the original text. We can't recover what Peter and Paul and James and John and so forth uh, wrote uh, because it's just been so distorted over time. They think of it kind of like the telephone game. You ever play the telephone game? Uh, 
where I go uh, to Miss Mary and I tell her some sort of phrase and then she whispers it to Jill who then whispers it uh, to Carrington who then on and on and on. And by the time it gets all the way back over here uh, to the Williams, it's nowhere near like what I originally said, right? It's become so distorted. That's how a lot of people think of this transmission of, of scripture over time. But let's imagine a different scenario. Let's imagine that I uh, told a phrase to Miss Mary, and then she says uh, the same thing uh, to uh, Jill. But at the same time, in addition to me telling them, I had a piece of paper. And in that piece of paper, I had written down that phrase. And I allow Mary to write down the phrase as well. So not only is she then going to speak something to Jill, but she's also going to then hand her a piece of paper. By the time this message gets all the way over to the Williams, is it going to be nearly as distorted or corrupted? No, it's going to be the exact same. Why? Because you have an opportunity to then read it. That's what's really going on with this uh, process called the transmission of Scripture. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. So as we, as we mentioned, we don't have the original uh, manuscripts of Scripture. We don't have these things that are called the autographs. If you remember in our first week together this semester, we talked a little bit about this, uh, or I think our second week together, we talked a little bit about it uh, in our section called just basic Bible information. And we talked about why it is that we wouldn't expect for there to be an original copy of uh, the first epistle of Peter or something like that. And uh, so I'm going to rehash a few of those things for those who weren't here or just uh, by way of reminder for all of us. Why is it that we would not expect to have an original copy of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians or Paul's letter to Rome or something like that? First off, as we talked about in that class, the materials upon which these manuscripts were written were not suited for preservation. All right, They're writing on papyrus which is like a form of uh, paper, early paper, or they're writing on uh, leather. Either of these things in various climates and so forth is going to eventually dry out and crumble and so forth. So the very uh, materials upon which these uh, manuscripts, uh, upon which this original text was written, is not well suited to be preserved. And so that's one of the reasons that we wouldn't expect for there to be an original copy of Scripture. Those things would have been 2,000 years old, and those materials were not made to last uh, 2,000 years old. Secondly, uh, when these uh, original texts were worn or weathered, there was a particular process that the early church would go through to get rid of them. So in other words, whenever, after uh, years of using this, let's say, a scroll, and on that scroll you have... uh, uh, the book of Isaiah or something like that, every time you open that scroll, it's going to kind of fade a little bit uh, as you kind of smudge it a little bit and so forth. So what uh, early uh, Jews and early Christians would do is whenever a scroll would get to the point where it's starting to become illegible, they would, out of reverence for it, they would make a final copy by hand. Obviously, they don't have a printing press or Xerox or anything like that. They would make a final copy by hand. And then because they so revered that scroll, as being God's word, they would burn it. Similar to the way that once uh, you have an American flag that you want to retire, 
The proper uh, way is to fold it up appropriately and then to burn it as a sign of respect, as a sign of honor, as a sign of reverence for what that flag symbolizes. That's what the early church and uh, the Jews and so forth would do uh, with these scrolls. So why would we not expect for there to be an original copy? Because the moment that original copy began to get faded, they would have made a final copy and then would have uh, gotten rid of it. We also talked about how there was uh, these intense uh, seasons of uh, persecution in the life of the church. And part of that persecution involved the burning of um, materials, the burning of uh, Christian books and so forth. In fact, uh, we have a number of, of historical accounts of Christians being told, either you burn your Bible or we're gonna burn your family. And, uh, and so uh, the uh, early Christians were, were forced, forced to make these sorts of decisions. And so a lot of the early copies of Scripture were burned as a result of uh, these uh, periods of, of persecution. In particular, there was one uh, by a guy named Diocletian starting in about 303. And for about 10 years, the Roman Empire uh, went through and tried to kind of like Nazi book burning, try to find everything related uh, to Christian uh, theology and history and any original text or whatever it might be and to burn it. And then lastly, we talked about there's no real theological need for the originals. The early church didn't feel this compulsion to protect, oh, this is the actual letter of Peter. Because what mattered to them was not, this is the actual letter of Peter. What mattered to them is this is a letter from God, which doesn't change if you make a copy. And so there would have been no, like, we might have this sort of, you might go to a bookstore and you might think, I want to find a first edition copy of Lonesome Dove or whatever it is that your favorite book is. I want to find a first edition copy of this as like a, a, a sign uh, as I'm a collector. That didn't exist in the early church. For them, it didn't matter if this was actually the handwriting of Peter or Paul or James. What mattered to them was it was the handwriting of God, which exists whether it's a copy or uh, not. And so what mattered to the early church is not the original text uh, or the original uh, manuscript. What mattered to them was the, the original words, the original text, the original meaning, and so forth. So it's helpful for us to differentiate between uh, two terms. Uh, on one hand, you have the original manuscripts or these autographs, which we said we don't have. On the other hand, you have what's called the original text, which is the message of Scripture, which we do have. So we might not have the original manuscripts, but we have the original text. We have the original words of Scripture uh, to a very high uh, degree. And, uh, and so there is an entire field that's birthed out of these sort of issues that we talked about, 400,000 uh, variants, thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. There's an entire field, uh, a science and an art that's developed uh, to help us recreate that original text, to get back, to recover that original text, and it's called textual criticism. That's what we're talking about today. So let me give you a definition uh, of it from Daniel Wallace, who happens to be one of the uh, world's most uh, uh, sort of learned scholars in this particular area, and he actually happens to be a professor at, uh, at DTS, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. So if this becomes a subject that you're fascinated in, Maybe you're a kid and you think, I want to do this for the rest of my life. You have one of the world's leading uh, experts in this field uh, just uh, 30 miles away or so. Daniel Wallace says this, textual criticism is the discipline 
that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. Textual criticism is the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original no longer exists. So in other words, this is not just a field that applies to the Bible, but this would be a field that applies to uh, early Roman works or Greek works or whatever it might be. Uh, Anything that you don't have the original, but you have various copies of the original, and you seek to go back and say, what does the original actually say? You use this science or discipline called textual uh, criticism. So when original manuscripts of of any ancient book are missing, then scholars are going to engage in this process called uh, original uh, or called textual criticism. And what they do is they use all of the existing copies, all the existing copies that they have, and, uh, and those trained in this field attempt to use these copies to weigh through all of the various variants and so forth, all the different discrepancies between each manuscript, and say, what is the original? They try to reconstruct uh, the original. And through this science that's called textual criticism, we can reconstruct the original doc, uh, manuscripts to varying degrees of certainty. Um, and, uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll chat about that. So we've talked before about canonicity. Canonicity is answering the question, do we have the correct books of Scripture? Were there books that shouldn't have been in there that were added? Or are there books that should be in there that weren't added? We talked about that a few weeks back. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get online and listen to that audio. Today we're talking about text criticism. That is, do we have, so we know we have the correct books because of canonicity, textual criticism, do we have the correct uh, original text, the correct original words, that is, the words that are in Greek if it's the New Testament or Hebrew if it's the Old Testament. And then later we'll talk about translation uh, in a couple of weeks. That is, do we have the correct English words, not just the Greek words or the Hebrew words? How do we know that we have the correct English words uh, for that? So these are how all these sort of topics fit uh, together uh, for us. So perhaps one of the best ways for us to go about um, kind of illustrating textual criticism is to give an example. Uh, let's, let's say <laughs> that you're in the first century and, uh, and in the first century, you write a letter. You write a letter to your employees, and that letter says, make sure the grain is harvested before the end of the week, All right? So you write a letter to your employees, and it says, make sure the grain is harvested before the end of the week. Now, let's assume this letter, the one that this guy actually wrote, is lost. It's somehow lost to time. But before the letter was lost, the employees got it, And each of the employees kind of made a copy of it to show to the employees that are under them or whatnot. And so thousands upon thousands of years later, you find four copies of this letter. The first one uh, says, make sure the grain is harvested before the end of the week. But week is spelled W-E-A-K instead of W-E-E-K. The second copy says, make sure the grain is harvested before the end of the week. But it's not, punctu- uh, it's not capitalized, and there's no punctuation on it. The third copy says, make sure the grain is harvested before the end of the week. There's no variance in that whatsoever. And the fourth copy says, make sure the grain is harvested before end of the week. So it's missing the word the. You have all four of these copies. How difficult would it be to reconstruct what the original said? It's not going to be very difficult at all. You know there's just a misspelling of the word week. 
Uh, you know that it's just somebody left out the word the. You know that uh, somebody failed to capitalize something or include a period or whatever it might be. It's going to be pretty uh, easy. This is the science of textual criticism. Sometimes it's a lot more difficult than that. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of issues of textual criticism, of reconciling these various uh, variants, is actually pretty easy. And any of us in this room could do the overwhelming majority of them. Uh, Just like if you were to get four copies and every one of them, except for one, said W-E-E-K and the other says W-E-A-K, you would just naturally recognize, oh, someone just misspelled. And, uh, And so the overwhelming majority of these sort of issues are so simple that any of us in this room, even without any training whatsoever in this particular discipline or field, would be able to uh, reconstruct uh, these uh, things. And so I want to give you six reasons, six reasons why uh, this uh, should not scare us, should not worry us, should not disturb us at all. Six reasons why some of the facts and figures that we talked about earlier Uh, should not disturb us uh, at all. So the first one, the types of variants that we find in the manuscripts are almost always minor. So the first reason this shouldn't scare us is because the types of variants that we find in the manuscripts are almost always minor. All textual variants... If you remember, a textual variant is a place where one manuscript says one thing and another manuscript says another thing. All textual variants can be broken down into four categories. The first category is variants which arise from spelling or grammar but do not affect content or meaning. This is by and large the overwhelming majority of textual variants that we have. The overwhelming uh, number of places where there's going to be some sort of discrepancy between one manuscript and another is going to fit into this category. In fact, about 75% of all variants fit within this. Variants which, are, which arise from spelling or grammar, but they do not affect content or meaning uh, at all. As an example of this, the most common uh, place that this plays itself out is uh, in Greek Greek often adds a, uh, a letter. It's called a nu. It looks like a, uh, an English N, um, uh, simply to aid in pronunciation. We do this in English as well, right? And so you say uh, a ball, but you say an ice cube, right? It's the same word. A and an is the exact same word. We just, for the sake of pronunciation, we put an N wherever there is a vowel sound in front of the next word. And, uh, and so Greek did the same sort of uh, convention. And so you would find in some of the manuscripts, sometimes where they would put the N in and sometimes where they would leave the N out. It doesn't affect meaning whatsoever. Uh, it just is uh, a variant, though. Uh, another example of this uh, type of uh, variant would be the, the way that we change words oftentimes, the, the way that a word is spelled. So think of uh, the word theater, right? T-H-E-A-T-E-R, all right? You might read something, though, that says T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You ever seen that variant uh, spelling of theater? Or color, C-O-L-O-R. But if you're in uh, Britain, how might you spell that? C-O-L-O-U-R, right? Does that mean it's a totally different word? No, it's just a, uh, a variant spelling and so forth. So we see this in Scripture. Sometimes Simon's name is written S-I-M-O-N. 
Sometimes it's written Simeon, S-I-M-E-O-N. It's referring to the same guy. It's the same word. It's just a variant uh, spelling. So again, the overwhelming majority, 75% of all the variants that we see in Scripture are related uh, to these sort of spelling or grammatical things which in no way affect the content or the meaning. The second largest group of uh, variants are minor variants, including synonyms and alterations, which again, do not affect the content or meaning. So we've already had the largest group, uh, which is uh, very minor things. The second largest group is also very, uh, various uh, minor things, uh, which do not substantially affect the, pa- the way a passage is to be interpreted. And it's things like synonyms and uh, slight little alterations. One of the most common examples that you see uh, throughout the Bible of this particular type of variant is word order differences, which in Greek are much less significant than they are in English. In English, um, uh, the boy hit the girl is a much different sentence than the girl hit the boy. In Greek, you could reverse the word order, and it wouldn't change the meaning whatsoever because the word order is not what carries the meaning. The uh, suffix on the word carries the meaning. And, uh, and so uh, the most common example of this that we see in the Scripture is Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll see Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll see Christ Jesus, right? Does that change the meaning whatsoever? No, it's the same thing. It's just a difference in uh, the word order so you see, you begin to see just how minor these variants are, just little things. But what scholars are doing is they're tracking every time. If it's not precise, down to the very letter, the exact same as another manuscript, it's marked down as a variant, even though the overwhelming majority are really, really insignificant and minor. So one of the most common uh, in this particular type of variants are uh, that word order sort of thing, Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus or whatever it might be. A second really common example of this type of variant uh, is the use of a definite article uh, with proper names uh, in Greek. So sometimes, uh, you're familiar with a definite article, indefinite article is a or an, the definite article is the, the boy versus a boy. The boy is definite, a boy is indefinite. And, uh, and so in Greek, there would often be times that you would put a definite article in front of someone's name. Uh, and, uh, and so you might, instead of just seeing Jesus, you might see the Jesus, all right? Instead of saying Paul, you might see the Paul. But every time there is any sort of difference, if one time it just says Jesus and the next time it says the Jesus, they're gonna mark that down as being one of these variants. But again, this is one of the, Uh, the ones that you have here. The difference between Jesus versus the Jesus. Jerry has told me I have to start calling him the Jerry from now on. Same sort of idea, all right? So this is the second largest group of variants, right? The first group of variants, 75% of all variants are things like spelling. Uh, The next largest group, things like uh, word order. Um, The next largest group are variants which are meaningful, but are not uh, likely original, all right? Uh, Variants that would be meaningful, but they're not likely original. This category includes variants that would change the meaning, 
but are almost certainly not original based upon the age, the number of copies that have that variant, or various other uh, factors. Let me give you an example of this, uh, a real example. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, the overwhelming majority of manuscripts that uh, have a copy of 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, uh, have a reference in there to the gospel of God, all right, the gospel of God. We have one solitary copy from the late medieval period that instead of the gospel of God, it has the gospel of Christ. Now, does that have a different meaning? Yeah, to some degree, all right? God could be kind of a triune thing. It could be referring to God the Father. Christ is very specific, just referring to the Son. So it has a different meaning, but due to the fact that there's only one copy that says the gospel of Christ, and that one copy comes from the very late medieval period, scholars are able to look and say, yeah, but that's not, that's not the original. So at some point, a, a scribe just simply wrote the wrong thing. Instead of writing God, he wrote Christ. And, uh, and so that's a, an example of this variance, which would be meaningful, even though it's not all that theologically significant, the difference between God and Christ. Uh, but it's most likely not original. Let me give you another uh, example of this sort of thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. So within a couple of verses here, you'll have a couple of different variants. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. Most modern translations read something like, but we were gentle among you. So if you have your Bible and you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 7, it probably says, but we were gentle among you. However, some ancient manuscripts have this instead, but we were infants among you. We were infants among you. So most modern translations say, but we were gentle among you. But some early texts say something like, we were gentle among you. Now, we might see there is an overlap between an infant and uh, being gentle, but that's not what's going on here. The reason that there is this discrepancy, the reason that there is this variant is because in Greek, the difference between the word gentle and the word infant is literally one letter, all right? Uh, the word uh, infant is nepioi, and the word gentle is epioi. Nepioi versus epioi. So it's really easy. You can see how it would have been really easy for a scribe to simply just miss a letter and, uh, or add in a letter or something uh, like that. So we can easily see how a scribe would have just added an extra letter in there. Um, But there is one, one lone medieval manuscript which has neither nepioi nor epioi, but instead hippoi, hippoi, which sounds a little bit different, but uh, when actually written out, it looks really similar to epioi and uh, nepioi. Does anybody know what hippoi means? means horses, all right? And uh, so if that's what was written in 1 Thessalonians 2, it was, but we were horses among you. That's obviously not what Paul is writing. So you can see how this is an example of where it would be a, a very significant change if Paul had actually meant, instead of we were gentle among you, if he would meant we were horses among you. I don't even know what that means, but it's meaningful. It's significant. But given the fact there's only one and it's really late, and it's just a word that looks really similar to what we do have in the text. You can see how uh, it is not likely original. So the, the, the most common variant that we see 
is something that's really minor, something like spelling. The second most common, something that's really minor, like word order that doesn't affect meaning in Greek. The third most common is meaningful, but it's uh, highly unlikely that it was the original. And, uh, and then the fourth category, um, oh, sorry, before we go on, uh, an important one here. There are only two places in all of Scripture where there is a very extended textual variant. That is a textual variant that applies to more than uh, a few words here or there. And, uh, and one of those is actually going to be the conclusion of the text that uh, I'll be preaching later. And so the, the ending of Mark chapter 16, if you have a Bible and you look at that, probably your Bible has some sort of parenthetical comment or a footnote that says most scholars do not regard verses 9 through 20 as being part of Mark's original gospel. Um, that is one of the o- only two places in the entire New Testament where there is an extended place where there is this type of variant, a variant which would be very meaningful, but it is unlikely to be original. The other one is, uh, is called the uh, Comma Johannine, and uh, it is from John 753 through 811, 753 uh, through 811, and that's the account of the woman who's caught in adultery. If you remember that story, they want to stone her. Jesus is riding in the ground and so forth. So John uh, 7, uh, 53 through 8, 11, and the end of Mark's gospel, that is the last 12 verses in your English version. Most scholars today, most evangelical scholars, these are not just skeptics, most Christian scholars today would say those were not part of the original text of Scripture. Now, we're not saying they necessarily didn't happen, it's entirely likely that Jesus actually did encounter a woman who was caught in adultery and they were trying to stone her and so forth. We're not saying whether or not that actually happened. We're simply saying, based upon the manuscript evidence, it doesn't look like that that was originally part of John's gospel. Does that make sense? And, uh, and so, neither of, these two, neither of these passages are in the earliest manuscripts that we have. The earliest manuscripts that we have and the early like uh, sermons that we have recorded of early Christians and so forth, whenever they would be preaching through John's gospel, there would be no comment on uh, a passage of a woman caught in adultery, which leads us to conclude that was not in the earliest manuscripts that they had. They weren't preaching it because they didn't have it. It wasn't a part of their uh, copies and so forth. These verses, they have a history of being in our English Bibles because they were included in the King James Version, uh, which was a translation from the 17th century. Uh, 1611 was the, the first copy. And, uh, and that particular copy was based upon a number of later uh, uh, copies of Scripture, uh, copies of Scripture manuscripts from the 11th and 12th uh, centuries. And so we'll talk uh, in a few weeks about translations and uh, King James and how that came about and, uh, and all kinds of things and so forth. But for now, just to know, the reason that these things might still be in your Bible, you might have a Bible that has taken out uh, these accounts because, uh, again, scholars don't think that they were original. Um, but, uh, but the reason that uh, they're included in some of our English Bibles is because of that history of the King James Version. But most scholars would think uh, that that uh, uh, was not original. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to remind ourselves that what matters 
is God's original text. I'm not suggesting, evangelical scholars are not suggesting taking out something of the text that should be there. Instead, what we're suggesting is based upon all the evidence that we have before us, it looks like somebody added something to God's word. Taking something out of God's word is sinful, unfaithful. Adding something into God's word is also unfaithful. And so uh, what I'm suggesting, what, uh, what textual criticism is suggesting, is not that we take these things out of our Bibles, but that they shouldn't have been there in the first place. They might be helpful stories, might even have been a true account, but it's not a part of God's word based upon all the evidence that we have uh, from uh, history. We can talk about those particular stories if you want uh, at some point, but for now, just knowing th- those are the only two places where there are, the, there are these really meaningful chunks of uh, uh, the text uh, that uh, provide some sort of variant that would be meaningful, but again, scholars have looked at it and on the basis of all the evidence concluded these were not part of the original text. The last category, by far the smallest category of these variants, are variants which are both meaningful and also possibly original. Variants which are meaningful and also possibly original. Again, this is the smallest type of variant, and it accounts for less than 1% of all the textual variants. The smallest type of variant and accounts for less than 1%. Again, variants which are both meaningful and possibly original. An example from this, in Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Some manuscripts say, on the basis of all that goes before, it says, we have peace. Therefore, we have peace with God. While other manuscripts say instead, let us have peace with God. Therefore, let us have peace with God. So some manuscripts say we have peace. Some manuscripts say let us have peace. Now, in English, Uh, there is quite a bit of difference in the way that those two phrases sound. In Greek, the difference between those two phrases is literally one letter. So again, you can see how an early scribe might have accidentally wrote one or uh, the other. And uh, and the evidence on both sides is pretty strong. And so it's a place where uh, scholars have said this would be meaningful. Those mean different things. We have peace, let us have peace, mean different things. And based on the textual evidence and so forth, we're not really sure which one was the original reading of Romans chapter 5. But here's the cool thing. Both of them are true. There is a sense in which we have peace with God because of all that's gone before in, in uh, the epistle of, uh, to the Romans. There's also a peace in which uh, Paul would often tell us to do something that has already been done. So we have died with Christ, so therefore... Crucify the members of your body and so forth. And so uh, it's, entirely, uh, it's entirely possible either of these things are theologically true. We have peace with God, and we are commanded to pursue peace with God in light of the fact that he has already accomplished this for us. Another example of this sort of thing, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> In your English Bible, it might say, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There are a number of uh, early manuscripts that instead say we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Again, we're not really sure which one John actually wrote. It is meaningful. It is significant. 
There's a difference between our joy being complete and your joy being complete. But again, both are theologically true. We know from other texts of Scripture. So we don't know what this text says. But one of the interesting things about all of these uh, particular types of variants that are both uh, significant and also uh, possibly original is that they don't affect any sort of cardinal doctrine at all. They don't really change any sort of theology whatsoever. They change the meaning of individual texts, but they don't change the overall theology of Scripture. Even uh, one of the most renowned skeptics of the Bible, uh, who was an expert in textual criticism, uh, but he uh, is not a believer, Bart Ehrman, he said this, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So listen to that. This is a renowned non-Christian skeptic named Bart Ehrman. He says, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. We'll come back to that in a minute. So again, only a minute fraction of all the variants that you find in Scripture are both potentially original and also theologically significant, but that should in no way lead us to despair for a few reasons, and so we'll talk about the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth reasons we should not be fearful when we hear about this thing called textual criticism. The second reason, in addition to the the fact that most of the overwhelming majority of variants are so insignificant, so slight, so minor, the second reason, we have more New Testament manuscripts to compare to each other than any other document from the Greco-Roman world. For example, we only have a few copies of the works of Plato or of the historian Tacitus. When it comes to the New Testament, we have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts, around 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 20 to 25,000 other languages. In addition to that, we have over a million quotations from early church fathers. So you just have this what's a wealth of information, a wealth of of evidence and, uh, and so forth. I included in the, the handout a little chart there that has uh, a number of historical documents on the left, then the oldest manuscripts that you see, and then the number of surviving manuscripts there. So you can see, uh, whereas the, uh, the closest would be um, the Suetonius, uh, and that's nine centuries after uh, he wrote nine or eight centuries later or so. And there's 200 surviving manuscripts. The New Testament is written within a generation or the the earliest copies that we have are within a generation of when the New Testament was written. We have 5,700 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, over 20,000 in other languages. And that number is still growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. It's like that Flintstones vitamins. And growing, that sort of thing. Um, so, because uh, each, each year, in fact, they just found uh, one of the earliest copies of uh, a, a manuscript uh, just a, a, year, a little over a year ago or something like that. So, we're continuing to find more and more and more and more of uh, these copies of Scripture. The reason that this is important is because the more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the original since you have more to compare it to. You have more to compare it to. And, uh, and so, 
That's the second reason that we shouldn't be fearful of this. The third reason, our New Testament manuscripts are closer in age to the time they were written than other works of Greco-Roman literature. It's also in that uh, uh, chart that I included for you. For example, when uh, Tacitus, the historian, wrote in the first and second century, the earliest manuscript we have from him dates from the ninth century. That's 700 to 800 years after it was written. That leaves ample time for copyist errors sort of to creep in to the textual tradition. Consider that, uh, compare that with how close the New Testament documents were to the copies, the manuscripts that we have. The oldest manuscript we have is, is one called Ryland's Fragment. Ryland's Fragment. It's dated uh, by some scholars to the first half of the second century, possibly even the latter part of the first century. So uh, we have uh, what is most likely uh, a copy or maybe a copy of, the, of a copy, but within 20, 30, 40 years of when this document was actually written. Compare that to 700 to 800 years later, and you can see there's much less time for errors to even creep into a textual uh, tradition and so forth. In fact, we could recreate about 43% of the New Testament using just manuscripts that we find from the second century or earlier. So within a generation or so uh, of the closing of the canon, the death of the last apostle, uh, you could recreate about 43% of the New Testament. Uh, And the best complete copy of the New Testament we have in Greek is called Codex Sinaiticus, which dates from the 4th century. So we have an entire copy of the New Testament from the 4th century. In addition to all kinds of fragments, a book here, a book there, uh, a a chapter here, a chapter there from the uh, uh, 2nd century, uh, and so forth. Um, (laughs) So in the field of textual criticism, as you can imagine, this presents an, an amazing advantage for Christians uh, engaging in this particular work because not only do we have a, a, a wealth of, in terms of the number of uh, copies of uh, manuscripts that we have, but we have these manuscripts that are so near in time to when they were originally uh, written, blowing everything else uh, comparably out of the water. Uh, Another reason we shouldn't be fearful, we know from Jewish scribal history, there was a strong tradition of strictly maintaining a text. Again, it was so revered that whenever they would want to get rid of the text, they would uh, kind of uh, honorably give it a uh, retirement ceremony where they would then burn it as we would do when we retire a flag. Um, Bear in mind, there's this very strong belief in the reverence of the text. It It had the divine name in it, and so they're going to treat it and handle it uh, carefully to, to change God's word for an early scribe would have been held as the highest unfaithfulness in Jewish culture. And that was picked up by Christians who just kind of grow out of the seedbed of Judaism. And, uh, and so as an example of this form of precision, the degree to which scribes, that was, that was their job, they were a scribe, the degree to which they held this uh, position in reverence Uh, Consider the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, so some of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, They were discovered in the caves of Qumran, which was an Essene uh, community, an an early uh, Essene uh, community, which was a a Jewish uh, sect. 
Uh, and uh, in the 1940s, a shepherd was walking uh, through this area of Qumran right next to the Dead Sea. He threw a rock into a cave, uh, as, uh, as boys tend to do, throwing rocks, and he heard something break. And so he scampers up there, goes into the cave, and finds just, just uh, pottery after pottery after pottery. And all of these are containing scrolls. And, uh, and, and they find, uh, what they find is astounding. Up until this point, the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were found, the earliest Old Testament manuscripts that we had, the only, oldest uh, complete Old Testament manuscripts that we had were dated to the 9th or 10th century A.D. 9th or 10th century A.D. What they found in the Dead Sea uh, Scrolls, uh, in these caves there in Qumran, are uh, manuscripts which date from one or two centuries B.C. So before we found these, the earliest we had was from the 9th or 10th century A.D. Now we found these manuscripts that go all the way back to one or two centuries B.C. And what they found was astounding, and that is that they were almost identical. Almost identical. In other words, over a span of a thousand years, uh, over a span of a thousand years, there are very, 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 very few uh, textual variants, which, which for in the, the science of textual criticism, kind of demonstrated what they had always held to be true, which was that the Jews were very precise in their copying of Scripture, that they held this to be a sacred duty, and, uh, and so they discharged it with the uh, utmost amount of faithfulness. And so we have every reason to believe that early Christians carried on the same sort of care and concern for the Word. A fifth reason that we should not be concerned is because we have a vast array of quotations from the New Testament within various extra-biblical sources. Briefly alluded to that a minute ago when I said there's uh, over a million early quotations from church fathers uh, and so forth, which confirm the manuscript evidence that we have. And so imagine if I'm preaching a sermon and I quote from a text of Scripture, and then my sermon is written down, well, then you would have a, an illustrator or you would have an example of how I read the text because I've quoted from it there. That's what we have uh, within these uh, array of quotations uh, from uh, various extra-biblical sources. Bruce Metzger says this. Uh, he's an expert in this field also. He says, so extensive are these citations uh, by uh, various church fathers and so forth, that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament would, were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. The New Testament is quoted so often uh, by early church fathers that even if we didn't have any manuscripts whatsoever, we didn't have any copies of copies of copies of Romans or First Thessalonians or First Timothy or whatever, even if we had none of those, we could literally reconstruct the entire New Testament completely with the exception of 11 verses. 11 verses, that's it. And, uh, and so again, this allows us to check our manuscript evidence. We have the biblical evidence and then we have this extra biblical evidence, these quotations by early church fathers and we find there is this uh, uh, similarity that exists between uh, the two. And a final reason that we should uh, not fear uh, this, uh, the reality of these existence of these variants between various texts is there is absolutely no confusion, no uncertainty, 
on any major Christian doctrine. We talked before about how we can know with almost absolute certainty, almost absolute certainty, what the New Testament says in about 99% of it, a little over 99%, where the remaining 1%, uh, where there still is a a degree of debate or question or whatever, as we talked about, uh, those are not going to be uh, things that are, they're going to be significant in regards to the meaning of that text, but they're not going to change the overall theology of Scripture. So we might have a text that says Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus. We don't have a text that says Jesus is not the Christ. We might have a text that says the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ. We don't have a text that says Jesus didn't rise from the dead or Jesus is not God or something uh, like that. There is literally not a single uh, uh, reason for us to doubt any major Christian doctrine, if you took out all of the variants, every single variant, every single place where there is a little bit of a discrepancy between uh, the textual traditions that we have, you would still have the virgin birth, you would still have the deity of Christ, you would still have uh, the triunity of God, you would still have substitutionary atonement, you would still have the resurrection of Christ, you, you would still have all of these cardinal doctrines. There is literally no major doctrine of the faith that is in any way disturbed or upset or questioned on the basis of these sort of things. So we, in light of all of these reasons, we should be absolutely confident in the text of Scripture that we have before us, that we have access, we have an, an ability to recover or to uncover not with, with absolute certainty, 99% of the text, and where that other 1% remains, uh, a few things are going to be true. One, it's not going to affect any cardinal doctrine. And two, oftentimes there's going to be a notation in, in your Bible. So if you have a, a really good Bible, I would recommend something like the ESV Study Bible or something like that. It's going to have a quotation there or, or a parenthetical remark or a footnote that's going to say early texts. Some early texts say the gospel Uh, of Christ Jesus and not the gospel of Jesus Christ or whatever uh, it might be. And so let me uh, me, uh, kind of switch gears for a second and then we'll have uh, Zach come up. Uh, Let me ask you just by show of hands, uh, who would say that what we talked about today is almost completely novel information for you? Almost completely novel information. Okay. Who would say I, I had a little bit of understanding of this subject before. Okay? Who would say, man, I am like a textual critical scholar in this field, right? Okay? So most of us not, right? So here's, here's the reality. For whatever reason, churches tend to uh, ignore this topic. I think the vast... Uh, the reason is not because it's some sort of conspiracy. It's not because it's something to be embarrassed about whatsoever. It's, it's really a lot of much ado about nothing. The reason that most churches don't talk about this is because there's not a whole lot to talk about. At the end of the day, it really doesn't change anything. We've gone through this entire lesson in textual criticism, and hopefully you look at your Bible and nothing changed in regards to uh, your belief in the inerrancy and sufficiency and authority of God's Word and so forth. So why are we talking about it? Why are we doing that? Well, uh, 
because I have a particular passion, Zach has a particular passion, Jerry has a particular passion, that we not be ignorant of these things, especially because just sitting on that back row, we have a number of our uh, youth, and at some point, they'll go off to college, and they will encounter somebody who knows a little bit about this. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. And they'll say, did you know that we don't have any of the copies of Scripture, or even the copies of copies of Scripture, or copies of copies of copies. In fact, there are more variants in Scripture than there are words in Scripture. And because kids have never heard this before, what's the effect upon them? What do they begin to think? Did my parents lie to me? Did my church lie to me? And they may or may not end up uh, researching it with a reputable sort of resource, and, uh, and so I have a particular passion for this, that we be introduced to it uh, so that we can dispel any of the myths and rumors and, uh, and suspicion that revolves around this subject because there is no grand conspiracy. There is no grand changing of Scripture. Uh, these are all minor sorts of things that are important for us, for us but uh, should not affect our uh, understanding and so forth. So it's kind of the idea that an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. If you hear this for the first time from someone who is skeptical, that's going to produce quite a weight of doubt uh, in your heart, uh, potentially. Whereas if you just have had a little bit of a primer, a little bit of an intro on this, uh, that is going to really help uh, when uh, you encounter somebody who has those sorts of questions and concerns uh, and so forth. So uh, what I want to do is I want to have Zachary come up. We'll do some Q&A. And then let me tell you this. If, if this is, because we have literally just done a very quick primer on this, two things. One, if anything that I said in any way makes you suspicious or distrust the Bible that you have in your lap, uh, then I have done a poor job of communicating, because that should not be the case. This hopefully should dispel all of those sorts of feelings and so forth, but if I have not done a good job, then I would encourage you to come and speak uh, with me or Zach or Jerry or uh, one of the other elders or whatever it might be for some more help in kind of working through this issue, and I would love to be able to get you some resources. If this is just an area that you're like, man, I'd love to, to study this, I'd encourage you to read in the ESV Study Bible. There's an entire uh, article on the reliability of our manuscripts uh, traditions, and uh, I'd encourage you to read that, and I can send you a, a plethora of other uh, materials and so forth.